Our scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. After this, Jesus went, went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning, when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because of the Sabbath? I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is God's word. Please stand for the singing of the doxology. When many of you get together socially at someone's home, it's not unusual for somebody to say, does anyone want to play a game? A game could be a, a fun way to interact. And if somebody wants to introduce a new game, and you know, the question is, well, uh, in deciding whether or not we want to play it, uh, what is this game about? Usually the explanation really is an explanation of the rule of, rules of the game. So everybody's going to get a certain number of cards, a certain number of pieces, and we do these things, and the person who is able to do this wins. And then if that sounds appealing to you and you agree, then you wind up having to explain the rest of the rules to make sure that everybody understands. Now, a game is there for fun, but it would be unusual for somebody to be like, oh, so many rules. <laughs> who wants to play a game if it's just about all of these rules? Well, the, the rules are not there to... Uh, to control anyone or to keep fun from happening. It just sets the boundaries. On the one hand, if we said, okay, we'll have a game where there's just no rules, everybody does what they want, that would either get boring really quick or get so interesting quickly that it would wind up with somebody in the hospital and somebody else arrested. So uh, having games uh, with, with rules, it's like, well, the rules are not a problem, but it would also be strange 
to say, everybody go and study the manual and come back and just make sure that everything, uh, everybody does these rules perfectly, as if to say that the way to win the game is the person who keeps the rules the best. You just assume that the rules are kind of the boundaries and then there's something else that you're trying to do. Um, and the rules are there to make sure nobody's cheating, to make sure that it's fair, but you're not there to see who keeps the rules the best. You're there to, to do whatever the goal of the game is. Those two um, options, either I hate rules, I just want to do whatever I want, or I love rules and I'm going to be the best at keeping them. Uh, each of us tends to lean in one direction or the other in life. And so when it comes to talking about faith, when it comes to talking about religion, it's not surprising that there are rules, that there are commandments. Uh, rightly understood, that's helpful. That creates boundaries. It, it, it articulates purpose. Uh, it helps to make sure we're on the same page. So on the one hand, to say, well, I don't want anything to do with uh, religion or faith or ethics because I just want to do whatever I want, a society where every individual does entirely what they want uh, will run into problems. But on the other hand, there's always the temptation with any religion, including Christianity, to think that the goal is simply to learn the rules and to keep the rules and to be the best at keeping the rules. Uh, and either of those is a misunderstanding of things. And so <clears throat> there's a word that comes up, at least in Christian circles, called legalism. And generally what most people mean by that is the idea that you're relating to Christianity on the basis of rules. Now today I'm not planning on talking about legalism, um, but just in the introduction, um, it's interesting that, that the other side that people often talk about, maybe less of a known term, but the term antinomianism, the word nomos in Greek means law. So you've got the pro-law people and the anti-law people, the legalists, the antinomians. And, and the stereotype is the antinomians are the types that just say, I just do whatever I want, and, and however they think about it, I have the spirit, this is what I feel. And then the legalists are, well, these are the rules and you need to keep them. There's a guy named Sinclair Ferguson who says that interestingly enough, we tend to think of those two as opposed. There's legalism and there's antinomianism. But he says, but they, they tend not to be opposed to each other they're both opposed to grace. Grace is the goal. And it's a failure to understand grace to either think in a legalistic, everything is about the rules, or the antinomian, everything is about me and how I feel. Um, both of them underneath it are making a similar kind of error that winds up getting corrected if we understand grace. So what I want to talk about today is not legalism, but what I'm calling the legalistic spirit. Something that is in every single one of us, even if it may manifest itself differently. Some of you are more freedom people, some of you are more conformity people, uh, and in different contexts we may, may um, you know, uh, it may manifest itself in different ways. But the basic idea is there's something uh, in each of us that doesn't understand grace and therefore not only relates to God wrong, but in trying to align our lives with God, uh, everything goes wrong, including understanding his ways and the role that they play in our lives. Uh, so uh, I'm going to read a quote from a guy named Gerhardus Voss. Any of you thinking about unique baby names, we have not had a Gerhardus at Emmanuel, so that would give your child special status with us. Uh, but he said this, he said, legalism 
is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. So that's the essence. There's God and God's ways. And there's something about us when we focus on God's ways, apart from God and his person, God and his grace and his wisdom and his compassion and his justice, that once it becomes its own thing, things start to go wrong. So that Sinclair Ferguson can say the essence of legalism is rooted not merely in our view of law as such, but in a distorted view of God as the giver of his law. So what I want to talk about today is that spirit of legalism, a wrong view of God that comes from our suspicion, our fear, our corrupt desires, whatever it is that's in us. We have a, a faulty view of God, and therefore that plays out in a faulty view of a number of things. And it has that legalistic spirit that manifests itself in our trying to control what we cannot control, like people, like our having constant anger and impatience and frustration. The kinds of things that most of us recognize are there too much and we don't want and we don't know how to get rid of. Um, there's could be a variety of reasons for those things that work in our lives, but one of them is what I want to talk about today, this legalistic spirit, something in us that is off, that's not oriented rightly to God, that doesn't understand grace, that then causes problems in our experience, in our choices. And so I want to talk about three things as we look at this uh, first portion of John chapter 7. The first is what I'm calling the misaligned will. This is an evidence of the problem. It is part of the problem where our, our will is not aligned with God's will. So um, Jesus makes an interesting statement. So he's now back in Jerusalem. So if you're following John's gospel, it starts in Galilee. He comes down to Jerusalem. He goes back up to Galilee. Now he comes back to Jerusalem again. And so he's in the center of a very... Uh, you know, religious environment, including very, uh, some very strict uh, groups within that. And so for him in verse 19, to say to the group that he's talking to, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Seems like an odd thing to say none of you keeps the law when, when they're saying we, we have teams of experts that are, are studying the Bible and working it out and applying it to modern society so that we can make sure everyone is keeping the law. And Jesus is saying, actually, none of you <laughs> is keeping the law. And what he's not saying is it's, you're not living very strict, disciplined lives. And Jesus seems to be indicating there's something in that that is missing the essence of, of who you're meant to be. So when you read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew's gospel, he'll say things like, you have heard it said, do not murder. So that's one of the commandments. That's in the law of God. But I say to you, anyone who calls somebody a fool is guilty of murder. No, he doesn't give us a new rule. Okay, we're not allowed to use the word fool. So that's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is saying is you think because you haven't killed anyone that you're above the law. But if you really knew God and his heart and his ways and you were honest with yourself, you'd know that that murderous spirit is having an influence in you and you're excusing it because you haven't literally killed someone. So you're feeling better about yourself than others and it's breeding arrogance. It's that kind of thing where Jesus says, 
none of you are keeping the law. And he's saying that because there's a controversy that they're accusing him of being a Sabbath breaker. So we're going to get into that. But, uh, but here's this charge, none of you keeps the law. And, and as he works this out, in verses 17 and 18, there are three words that work really well together to help us understand the kind of problem in our heart that Jesus is wanting to address. And the three words are will, glory, and authority. And so the overall, what I'm trying to highlight is our wills not being aligned with God or with one another. But this is verses 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. So they're marveling at his teaching because he, he wasn't trained in one of their traditional schools, but, but because his will is aligned with the Father's will. Uh, anyone who's studying the Bible will recognize he's saying things that are deeply profound. And because of who Jesus is being aligned with God's will, anyone who's interested in ethics, anyone of any religion, is bound to see something in Jesus that's compelling. Any person reading the Gospels has to be struck by something to say, there's something deep, there's something profound, there's something right here in this person and what he's saying. But the funny thing is, anyone is also going to say, there's something here I, I don't like. <laughs> and it could be people that have no exposure to Christianity, even the Christian comes across things in the teaching of Jesus, I don't understand it, or I wish he didn't teach this. Um, and that's part of that that need for all of us to grow. Jesus is saying, my will is aligned with the Father's will. I'm not coming here and saying, God put me in charge, you need to listen to me. He's not here seeking his own glory, look, I'm the greatest. Now that you see the wisdom of my teaching, I will give you more. He's saying, fundamentally, if you desire to know God's will, if that's truly what you're seeking, then when you come to me, Despite all of the questions, whatever criteria you have, thinking that if I meet it, you'll be satisfied, you will recognize the voice of the one who sent me. Any true God seeker should recognize in Jesus something that you say that's familiar, that, that aligns with the truth, that aligns with what uh, God is like, that aligns with what is deep and profound and life-changing. So Jesus is saying here, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And that language of authority is interesting um, because what happens when our will is not aligned with God's will, as is the human problem, everyone wants their own things and therefore there's this competition for who gets to get what they want. Uh, we then take authority and misuse it and it becomes authoritarianism. We then uh, just try to control everything and everyone around us in order that things work to our advantage and we don't care about how it works uh, for others. Behind this is this misalignment is, is, a, is a changed goal, a changed glory to use the word of these verses. Uh, the idea of glory that, that in the Bible, God is beautiful. God is radiant. He, there's a transcendence that if we um, would, would catch a glimpse of something of that reality, it would, it would encourage our hearts and it would still our fears. There's something there that we want, but, but because God is veiled, there's a problem with humanity being separated. We don't, we don't access that, but we still have that desire 
to see the great and the beautiful and the true and for things to be just and for things to work. Um, the history of the Bible, the, the turning of God, turning from God at the beginning, is what Romans 1 describes as an exchanging of glory. So in Genesis 2 and 3, uh, Genesis 2 is the, the picture of Eden. It's a glorious place. God is present with Adam and Eve, and it's fruitful, and there's trees, and there's rivers, and there's a life, and there's relationship, and everything seems to be working. But then Genesis 3 tells a story where things go wrong. And what's interesting in Genesis 2, there are many trees, but two of them are named. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's one commandment that we know of from God, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no commandment that we know of about the tree of life, but presumably, if they just kept eating through the garden, they would eat of that tree of life. Uh, the serpent, the one who comes to deceive, to manipulate, to turn them against God and against one another in Genesis 3 comes. And he doesn't say, look, there are two trees which are better. He focuses them on the one thing God has said, don't do that. Hey, here's this tree. Um, why would God ask you not to eat of it? Look at it, and they look at it, and they realize, well, it's pleasing to the eye. It looks good for food, uh, as the other trees. And so, so the, the cynical um, reframing that gets planted in them is, here's a reinterpretation. Maybe God knows you will be like him if you eat from that tree. God has something good he's withholding from you. See, if you scale back and you look at everything that God has done, their experience of God, and if you highlight the tree of life, that doesn't make sense. God is actually not withholding good from you. He's withholding evil from you. God wants you to have life. That's the tree he wants you to eat from. God does not want you to experience evil, so he's warning you not to eat of that. So the serpent comes in and says, let's just look at this one tree, good and evil. God must be withholding good from you. And if you start with that assumption, maybe I'm going to go through life beginning with the assumption God is withholding good. <laughs> What's happened is if, if the source of glory has changed, there's a redirection. It's not you know, through all of these things that God has made that bear witness to his generosity. So ultimately, God's glory is in all things. God's life-giving power. Instead, what we get is, well, actually, maybe you'll find a deeper, a secret hidden glory in this thing that God has forbidden. And by, by thinking, actually, there's a glory we could have apart from God, what happens is our will always is aligned with what we think is glorious, what we think will be rewarding, what we think will be good. If you can move that away from God, then our wills are not directed towards God or aligned with God, but are directed towards whatever we think it is, being the most famous person ever, being able to have people think I'm the greatest, being able to command and tell people to do whatever I want, having riches and wealth, any of those things, that's my ultimate glory. That's what a, a, a truly rich life will be like. Well, then our will gets aligned with that. How do I get the most money? How do I get to the top of the corporation? Whatever our desires are. So our, lot, our wills get aligned such that Jesus comes. I have come to do the will of the Father. And there's something in it that seems right, but there's something in it that's just not how we're living and trying to live. And what Jesus is saying is the, the spirit that's being critical of me is the same spirit <laughs> that's seeking the wrong glory. It's, it's the spirit that, that is not seeing God wants to give you life and is trying to protect you from evil. And so what you're doing is you're running after what's causing you and everyone around you harm. And 
and you can't make sense of it, so you're blaming God, yourself, and everyone around you. And it's that legalistic spirit of then trying to, um, to take control, to fix this, to fix everyone else, to fix our desires, to fix our hearts, to fix society. The obsessive way that, that we're trying to do it in a way that's only leading to our own psychological breakdown or our own uh, relational divisions or our own wars, wherever they are, uh, there's a conflict of wills in our world because each of us have our own vision of glory that's in some created thing or in some ideology. And so, so the realignment of the will needs to happen, but if it doesn't, that legalistic spirit, that, that drive in us to say either I'm not going to keep anyone's rules or I'm going to make sure everyone keeps mine, causes problems. Um, and, and therefore, uh, here's the second thing I want to move to, there are hidden motives that Jesus is exposing because part of the issue is a glory that we don't necessarily see and a will that's why we align to that. There are hidden motives that we have that we don't even know the depth of ourselves. We just know we want certain things and we pursue those things. Um, but, but the idea of the hiddenness here, um, it is a theme in John's gospel that there's light and darkness and there's what will be revealed, uh, all of these things. It comes up in this passage to show that things are unhealthy simply by the fact that this society, uh, having their problems like any society, uh, doesn't have openness. So first, what's interesting, Jesus' brothers, in verses 4 and 5, they have some ministry tips for Jesus. So Jesus, in, in John 6, uh, the crowds are seeking him, and then they wind up leaving. You know, all of these people come to you, Jesus, and they've seen the signs, and they're excited, and they want more, and then you say, eat my body. What on earth were you thinking? You know, if you're going to say that, give them two years, just, you know, feed them some more, maybe talk about some benefits for them, and then get into the weird eating the body stuff. That's John 6, if you haven't read that. Jesus says, you have to eat my body, and people are like, that's weird. We're just going to leave, and, and the crowd walks away. So it's almost like now, Jesus' brothers as the coach, okay, there's this festival in Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths, and this is a glorious festival where God's people were remembering the, the years where God uh, between the time that he took them out of the slavery of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, where they wandered in the wilderness, God provided, even while they lived in booths, he provided manna from heaven. And it's a festival that is meant to be a celebration, a joy of God's provision. You go back and you read Numbers, and even while God is providing, they're grumbling against God, against Moses, against God's provision. And so that's part of the story. So here's the Feast of Booths. <laughs> God, again, is, is going to come to a people that are just quickly dissatisfied. And so Jesus' brothers in verses 4 and 5 say, no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And John says he's, he writes that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in him we would have life in his name. But John is saying his, his brothers do not yet understand that. They don't believe that, so they don't understand in trying to prop up Jesus' ministry. They don't really understand ultimately what he came to do. So they're thinking like the world thinks, like we all think, Jesus, how can you build a bigger crowd? How can you be more persuasive, more effective? Well, go down now while everyone's there, and that will help you maybe rebuild a crowd. But Jesus is not interested in building a crowd. And that's the thing is, he is very different from the way the world works. 
He's not here so that we will like him. He's not here so that he'll be popular. He's not here simply to gain a lot of followers for the sake of then having followers so that he has authority over them. And, and we see that he's so different because in his timing, that's what he says is it's not the time yet. And yet he does wind up going to the festival and he does go to Jerusalem. Uh, and we find there that the complicated social context is like most contexts, but it's one where people have an underlying fear because those who are in charge are trying to control things. And so they can't speak openly about what they're thinking. Verses 12 and 13, there was much muttering about Jesus among the people. So there's that, that grumbling, it's still there in, the, in this section. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. And again, in John, the reminder of, of uh, when Jesus speaks about the Jews, everyone here is Jewish. Uh, so John seems to be highlighting that, that there's a problem with the, the religious leadership trying to take control of their uh, national identity. And so verse 13 talks about there's fear here, so no one speaks openly. People can't make sense of Jesus, and that's okay. He's clear he's talking about deep and profound things, but why can't we talk about it? I think Jesus would have welcomed people saying, we think you're leading people astray. Well, let's talk about it. And yet, no one wants to speak openly because of fear. That's a sign that something's wrong, that, that the people controlling things uh, are not allowing space for the truth um, because they can't. Now Jesus comes and he exposes that. He simply shows up. Um, and and what, John said, what Jesus says to his brothers in verse 7, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So there it is. There's something about Jesus that exposes the problems. You know, those who are controlling things are doing so with a bit of corruption, with some injustice. And therefore, people can't come out and speak about what is true because that would ruin the system. Jesus says, I come to testify about it, that its works are evil. Pretty, pretty strong language. And, but what's very interesting is how does Jesus testify to the world that its works are evil? And this, again, is where Jesus tends to do things very differently from how we would or how we expect. So on the one hand, here's a clear statement. He says the works of the world are evil. Uh, we also see that he's willing to engage in an argument. He's willing to confront when there needs to be a confrontation. He has very strong words at times. And yet, most people do not have the, the impression that the nature of Jesus' ministry is the, the kind of fire and brimstone, point out that everyone is wrong and condemn them. You know, it's interesting that Jesus could, could make a statement to say, I testify that the, the world is evil, where most people who spend time with the gospel don't get a sense that he's, he's walking around pointing the finger, he's not harsh, he's not uptight and angry. Um, in this particular section, how is he testifying that the works are evil? Not by condemning people, but, but he healed somebody. That, that actually is what he did. Um, earlier in John's gospel, he healed someone who was paralyzed, and he did it on the Sabbath, and that creates a bit of a controversy that then is exposing um, some of the secret conversations or secret desires or things going on below the surface. So when he testifies about the world that its works are evil, what he's doing is he's testifying about the truth of God. In a world that has gone astray and is corrupt, to speak the truth is to expose evil. 
And so he doesn't come with a judgmental spirit. He doesn't come as the controlling person. He comes as somebody who speaks truthfully and warns truthfully. He talks about hell. He talks about the importance of keeping commandments. All of these hard topics are there. And yet, most people really paying attention to Jesus see, but there's something there. There's grace, there's warmth, there's humility. There's a, a trustworthiness to him that allows him to speak these hard words. But then his hard words become corrective. And that's what, what happens. Um, as so, if, so for instance, in verse 21, he said, I did one work and you marvel at it. So at this point, uh, if my count is right, I could be off by one. I think he's done five works. In John's gospel, there are seven. So there's, I think, two more coming. Maybe three more. I think two more. Um, all of them thus far have happened in Galilee. You know, turns water into wine. Um, heals the, uh, the, the leader's uh, sick kid. But then he comes to Jerusalem and he heals the paralytic individual. So when he says, I did one work and you marvel at it, he's now back in Jerusalem. They're still talking about that specific work because uh, there are two things that are noteworthy about the work. One is that he did a miracle, somebody who was unable to walk. He made uh, perfectly whole. But the second component is he did it on the Sabbath. And those two things become the nature of the conversation. What are people seeing? Are they seeing the power of God was at work to make things whole? This is the, the promised one that God had sent to renew the earth? Or are people seeing, wait a second, God's servant should keep his commands, and it looks like this person is not keeping God's commands. So, so who is Jesus? Is he somebody leading people astray? Or is he a good person? Uh, it's interesting that Jesus chose to heal on the Sabbath. I think as the brothers give him advice, my advice to Jesus would be, you've got six days to heal. Um, go easy, heal on a Tuesday. And then in conversation, give them a theology of the Sabbath. And then, but you know, the next heal, the next sign in Jerusalem, he heals again. A blind person gives him sight. Jesus, what are you doing? On the Sabbath again, why? You've got six other days. Why are these healings in Jerusalem on the Sabbath? It, it seems that Jesus is demonstrating a particular issue. And if you understand the context, the strictness about the Sabbath is actually quite understandable. The prophets warned God's people, you know, if you don't keep the Sabbath, if you're like the nations that you're so interested in making money, and you won't stop just to enjoy God and what he's given you, it's not going to work out well. And, and the prophets were right. God's people were exiled. So in exile, they went back and they said, what did we do wrong? And they read the prophets and they read the law. And they said, God warned us to keep the Sabbath. So now we are going to be those who keep the Sabbath. And how do we make sure we're doing it? That's exactly the right question. Well, let's look at our lives. Let's look at our rhythms and make sure that we're keeping the Sabbath. Everything about that was right. But it's that legalistic spirit that comes in that before you know it, it's not a delight. It's not a resting in God, but it's a, a system of rules that, that evidences itself because you're not focused on enjoying God, but you're focused on your anger with those who are not keeping the rules. And so where in the law of Moses does it say you can't heal on the Sabbath? 
Or in the case of the person who was healed, where Jesus says, take the mat you're sitting on and get up and walk. Why is the concern, well, well, carrying your mat on the Sabbath constitutes breaking the Sabbath? Well, this is not a typical Sabbath. I haven't walked in so many years. I, you know, today I, I took up my mat and I walked. Have I broken the Sabbath? Um, Jesus is testifying that even their good works are evil. So in verses 19 to 20, he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And, and that's what Jesus is, is saying, this legalistic spirit. It's not simply about how we keep rules or commands, but there's, there's an anger underneath. And the more you're out of control, the more you're trying to control, that this is a murderous spirit. This is not the Holy Spirit, but it's the spirit of the one who took you away from God, the one who's a liar, who's a murderer. And, and what he's saying is, you're seeking to kill me. Now in verse one, Jesus would not go about in Judea because they were seeking to kill him. And this is not an exaggerated claim. We know how John ends. They kill him. So Jesus is not making this up. But they don't yet understand who's seeking to kill you. Right now, we're just concerned that you're breaking the law. Well, what happens to lawbreakers? Well, we kill them. But we haven't yet concluded that. And so uh, in, in, the, in the Sabbath commandment, uh, Jesus is now using this to show, and, and, and he, he, he gives them the substance of, of how he's reasoning in verses 20 to 24. He says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So circumcision was given through Abraham, the covenantal promise. I will be your God. You will do my people. You will be my people. And here's a sign, circumcision. Moses commanded it because it was God's promise and it was right. So the problem is not with Moses. The problem is not with circumcision. The promise is not with the law. Jesus is saying all of this is from God. And so Moses gave you circumcision, but in verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's saying if, if you understand the promise comes to God through Abraham and the fathers, and it was codified, the sign, through Moses, you know that you've got six days to circumcise, but because circumcision, our custom has been to circumcise on the eighth day, uh, if the child, uh, eight days after it's born, if that happens to be the Sabbath, well then, you still circumcise. You're not breaking the Sabbath. You understand because this is about God's promise. It's about God's covenant. It's about God's sign. So none of us are Sabbath breakers when we're circumcising on the Sabbath. So if I come and make a whole person well, you know, because circumcision, it's kind of like we're, we're shedding some blood here in order to bring this person into our community. Um, Jesus is going to somebody who was uh, apart from the community. Uh, he was unable to come and worship, and he makes the person's whole body well so that for the first Sabbath ever, that person could go into the temple. And what you see is not the restorative work of God who is beginning to make all things new again. But you see a person who hasn't kept your rules. But you're showing that, that it's not that I'm not keeping God's rules, but your own rules don't make sense. Your inconsistency is there because I'm doing nothing different from you, if the goal is to be faithful to God, his covenant, the promises, the relationship, the signs, that's what's being fulfilled in your midst. And yet, 
my healing angers you. And so uh, the last thing he does is uh, he, he points us towards right judgment. So I've talked about the misaligned will and our hidden motives. But Jesus is, is highlighting these things in order to make things right, to put things in order, for us to be realigned, for us uh, to get those secret things going on, the, the, the operating system under us that's producing the anger and the bitterness and the control. Jesus is wanting to bring that out to deal with it. So he encourages right judgment. That's, this is the third in the last section. In verse 8, he says to them, <clears throat> to his brothers, for my time is not yet fully come. And that's actually an important signal in John's gospel. He keeps referring to, to this time, which reminds us that in every particular situation, Jesus is always in control of what's happening. It always looks like others are trying to take control, and yet he doesn't say what they want him to say, doesn't do what they want him to do. But ultimately, Jesus is not allowing them to set the agenda, because their agenda is to kill, <laughs> to create rules, uh, to... Uh, you know, to stabilize things with their own human program. Jesus' purpose is to give life. So when he says in verse 8, my time is not yet fully come. Um, he then says in verse 18, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And that's what Jesus is doing in all of these specific stories in John. He's seeking the glory of the one who sent him. But the particular time in John when God is glorified comes at the climax and it's this weird thing where, where then the, the desire that they have there that they're denying, you're crazy, who wants to kill you, is finally open as the crowds are saying, okay, we want him killed. So, so, so that time is coming in John's gospel, and these incidents are building the tension. But Jesus prays right before that time. And I'm just going to read the first two verses from his prayer in John 17, the whole chapter, the whole of John 17 is a prayer before then Jesus faces this trial. And in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. So there it is in John. My time has not yet come. And now in John 17, Father, the hour has come. My time has come. We're here. This is why I came. This is why I was sent into the world. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And look at his assumptions. You've given me authority. What does authority look like when it's entrusted to Jesus? Not to go and make people my servants. You've given me authority to give eternal life. That was always God's plans and purposes. So Jesus' authority, because his will is aligned with the Father, is not authoritarian. He's not coming. Uh, to take control. He's, he's coming to give life. And, and he says, his prayer is glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. My goal is not to glorify myself. I'm about to subject myself to injustice, to false accusations, to hostility. I'm praying for strength because my goal is not to glorify myself. It's to glorify you through my faithfulness. But he's, but he's asking as I do that, glorify me. Which means Jesus did not come to seize a glory for himself, but he understands that glory is something that's given. Glory has its origin in God. So Jesus' focus is the glory of God. That's the place where all of these things are realized. So, Father, I want to glorify you. Give me that glory so that I could give even more glory to you. He's not there to take glory from anyone. 
He's not there to produce a glory, which is why he doesn't have that authoritarian impulse. He doesn't need to control us. He's here to give us life. He's here to glorify the Father, and his concern is that his will would remain aligned with the Father's. So he says, Father, the hour has come. And he's praying for the strength for him to do this, and then he's praying for his followers to be strong after he has done it. And what he winds up doing is he glorifies the Father, not through his own glory, but through his own humiliation. He subjects himself to this corrupt trial where according to their law and the law of the Romans, uh, he is misjudged in a religious and secular way. He's condemned as a criminal. Uh, they heap abuse and mockery upon him. And Jesus takes all of these things because God's plan from the beginning was there is life and there's evil. I want to protect you from evil and I want to give you life. But now you have the knowledge of evil. So Jesus goes to take the evil from us so that then he could give the life to us that we do not have. Jesus goes from the cross and bears evil and hostility in order that God's glory would start to be shown to humanity again, that he can give it to us. And there are two things that God gives us in John's gospel. He gives us his son and he gives us the Holy Spirit. And John chapter seven will end with Jesus talking about this water like the Holy Spirit First, he gives his son who's willing to give up his glory to be humiliated so that us in our sin and our shame and humiliation could be forgiven, could be cleansed, could be reconciled to God. And then after Jesus ascends into heaven, after he is glorified, after he's vindicated, the spirit will be poured out so that there's a new spirit in us, the very spirit of God. How do we fix the legalism problem? Not with a different set of rules. We fix the legalism problem with new hearts with a new glory that we seek after, with wills that are aligned towards that reality. That here we are seeking our own good and, 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 and uh, partnering with others to seek good against other people, and we're killing ourselves and one another. And Jesus says, I have come that you would have life. I'm giving my life so that you have life. And God will put his spirit in you so that you are no longer a grumbler and a complainer. You're no longer a plotter and a thief but you are somebody who has new desires. And the problem, of course, is yes, they coexist in, in who we are currently, but, but that's where Jesus is saying, see the glory of God who has loved you and given himself for you. And if you focus on that as true glory, and if you seek after that, your will over time will be realigned. And as your will is realigned, then you will live in this world, not as somebody who corruptly seizes power, but as somebody who understands what it means to steward whatever privilege you have so that God is honored and glorified and that people are built up. And so uh, in verses 23 and 24, are you angry with me because in the Sabbath I made a man's body well, his whole body? That's what Jesus is saying. This is what I've come to do is to make the whole person well. Here's a sign of what God will do. God will make the whole of the person well. Your corrupt heart, your evil thoughts, all of these things, God wants to subdue them so that eventually you're free of them and your life is aligned with him and you experience his glory. And so God can give us that spirit and it, it changes the way we relate to God because there's always something in us that says, God is withholding something good. There's something good that I want that God's not giving me. And, and when we, we say, if God gave me Jesus Christ, if God gives the spirit to dwell in me, I'm gonna have my founding assumption be God is withholding nothing good. 
and therefore I need to wait, and I need to learn, and I need to grow. And that actually changes how we relate to the commandments. And it's the difference between a highly energetic kid being told by the teacher during a geography lesson, you need to sit still and quiet because right now you need to learn geography. And the person's thinking, I'm not interested in geography. I'm going to go play basketball. Um, the rule, sit and be still and be quiet, feels completely oppressive. Um, if somebody who is really into cooking gets one hour with Ina Garden, uh, the sort of chef guru, and she comes over to your house and says, first of all, here's how you organize your cabinet, uh, and then let me watch you make a, a pastry dough, that's too much butter, and your technique is wrong, uh, at the end of the hour, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't say, oh, thank goodness, you know, this person that just sat there bossing me around finally leaves so I could get some rest. You would hope that she'd give you a second or a third hour because the more time you can get with her, the more that you're going to get the very things that you want. So many of us experience life with God as the teacher who's just saying, just be quiet. And that's where there's a sense which underneath it all, we need to understand the life-giving God. God wants to bless you. God wants to renew you. God has great things in store. When you really see that through what he's done in the ministry of Jesus Christ, then there's a sense in which you want more time where God is telling you how to change your life. You want more direction. You want more instruction. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. But ultimately, if it's true that God is good and wise, there's a freedom to then say, somebody can give me instructions for change, and I'm excited about it, rather than fearing this is just another person who's trying to control me. And the more that we are freely saying, this is a life-giving God who's trying to protect me from evil, as we're being changed, we then can go back into the world as life-giving people who are trying to protect others from evil. And we don't need to build a crowd for ourselves, and we don't need to have control of everyone, and we don't always need to be right. But if our will is aligned with will, if we're seeking that glory rather than our own, we'll find that that legalistic spirit loses its influence. It's just over the years as we mature, um, keeps us trapped less and less. And the way out of that is not simply by learning the rules, but by knowing the God who is gracious and then understanding his ways and being glad to walk in them. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we have so much that we need to learn and grow in, and yet there's a certain helplessness we feel because no matter how much we try, no matter how much we've studied, we still grumble, we complain, um, we're still dissatisfied. Lord, fill us with that spirit, the spirit that shows us uh, with fullness just what it means that Jesus gave himself for us. Help us to be so deeply grounded in the extent to which you give us life, that we would so value the life you offer to us, that we would be uh, filled with grace. And we pray that that grace would make its way into every area of our lives to renew our minds, to calm our hearts, and to change our behaviors so that we function in this world with the freedom of the gospel, a freedom that is aligned with you and your will and and is effective to bear fruit in this world. Uh, Help us all. Um, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.